Good evening. You are listening to the ENR podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 16th of August, and tonight I am joined by Bronwyn. Hello. And Mark. Hey. And we have a special guest, uh, Daniel Ryan. Howdy. Oh, he's an American. I didn't realize this. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say something different. So. <laughs> uh, and we left you with nothing but howdy. Fair point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so how, how have we all been? Well, busy. Busy. <laughs> good. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Fairly awesome. Uh, very good. Well, this is where I can just lead in to say I'm just, just getting over COVID. So, <laughs> um, yeah, my, my past week hasn't been fantastic. Um, but uh, yes, I have survived the tell the tale. So, did you survive because you took homeopathy? <laughs> no, I, I'm crediting my survival to my four jabs. <laughs> well, that's a lot. <laughs> yes, no, I am. I think I am hopefully well protected, and I, I uh, was thinking about uh, how how bad it could have been had I not been vaccinated at all. Uh, and and for me, for me, I mean, I've I've had it for just over a week now, and at the at the peak of it, I was feeling pretty pretty awful. Um, I certainly didn't have any problems breathing or anything, but uh, plenty of coughing and feeling very very lethargic and sleepy. And uh, and the worst of it for me was a very sort of bad headache that wouldn't go away for for about a day. Um, so. I'm pleased to be pleased to be over that. I'm still tired I'm... though. Is it going to be a short episode because it'll be your bedtime? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good excuse. No, I'm no. I've actually sort of um, got a lot of energy back. So um, nice. I think I, I think well, it's good to hear. Good. So yep, yep, yep. And I, mean... I know exactly who I got it off. Oh, my damn daughter! Oh. <laughs> the doctor? <laughs> yes. Oh, oh no! Ouch. Oh, <laughs> ouch! So she she got exposed uh, to another uh, doctor, but then she did a, uh, a rat test and came back negative, um, and then attended our family our family uh, birthday um, last Saturday night, and um, and then and I was sitting right beside her <laughs> for the evening. And of course, it was a sort of a family gathering dinner, so we were all unmasked. Um, so yeah, so that was how that was how I got it. Yeah. And uh, it's actually just surprising to me that, uh, that all the people who were there haven't come down with it. <laughs> so well, yeah. when I caught it, it was from a, a skeptical activism meeting. So I'm trying not to be skeptical anymore. <laughs> Obviously, bad for your health. Well, and not to toot my own horn, but despite being the uh, healthcare practitioner in this bunch, um, I haven't caught it yet, despite it actually being in my house a couple of weeks ago with mm. my husband being unwell. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, following some of the dialogue on Twitter, everyone's now starting to do a bit of, a, you know, informal or um, couch polstering, you know, how many people have had all their vaccines and are still getting COVID or, you know, who's been able to avoid COVID? Uh, raise your mm. hand. And you hear some really interesting rumors. Um, 
or folk beliefs, old wives tales, like, oh, you know, maybe it's having an O blood type. Maybe it's because you're wearing glasses. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, as in, as in potentially affecting the mask. Uh, well, but being guess. an extra barrier because it's not going into your eyes or, you know, and I oh, think the old I see. blood type, right. um, there's something about old blood types within um, Asian folk medicine or Asian folk health, health practices as well. I'm oh. looking at two people on the screen here that have glasses and not only Craig with glasses got COVID, but Dan, you had it a few weeks ago as well, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. I got caught it while in, um, having a holiday in Melbourne. <laughs> and you went so, to Australia. It's your own damn fault, right? Yeah, my husband caught it in Perth. I mean... <laughs> Over there, there's hardly any any protection. No one wears any masks. It's, yeah, it's just carnage. And mm. yep, I caught it and had to had to isolate while over there. And um, yeah, ends into the second week of my um, holiday, um, which yeah. was a shame because mm. yeah, I got to miss um, meeting my grandfather who lives outside of Melbourne, and um, he's um, he's got cancer and um in the bladder and um had to mm-hmm. have surgery recently and so i wanted to meet him but um of course yeah catching covid that yeah ruined those plans so um, yeah yeah i mean that's there's certainly bad planning to catch covid on your holiday yeah um, but lucky yeah. i um it was mild for me um yeah but well, you're uh, young yes, yes not like a not like us old folk <laughs> I noticed you didn't say young and fit. What are you saying about Dan? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. You're reading too much into it, Mr. Psychopath. (laughs) Oh, good. He's much fitter than I am. Possibly. (laughs) Yes. So uh, we should actually start talking about some stuff that matters. Yeah, exactly. Um. I believe everyone's watched the uh, most recent and interesting docu- um, documentary from, was it Stuff Circuit? Or mm. as some people on the other side of the fence are calling it Short Circuit, I believe. <laughs> Trying oh, to be dear. witty and punny. Wow, that's, uh, that's original, isn't it? Yes. I know, right? Really really cutting. Really, really <laughs> hurts. Yeah. Yeah, so the, um, yeah, so there was this documentary uh, called Fire and Fury. And I believe that we have all watched it. Yep. And uh, yeah, so it was a an hour long uh, documentary that covered the mainly about the um, conspiracy theories um, being promulgated in our country, um, and certainly concentrating on the uh, Wellington protests at Parliament back in February. Um, and all of the sort of uh, people that we've been identifying in the newsletter over the past couple of years were featured in the documentary. So you had um, Damien Dement, uh, uh, and he and, and the, the interesting thing about the documentary, which they made the point of, was that they were trying to, rather than tell the story in their own words, they were actually showing the viewers the videos and the content that these conspiracy theorists are actually putting out so that the so that they're not really filtering they're not filtering it through their own sort of lens they're actually letting people see yeah. the, exactly the sort of stuff that is being put out and some of it is pretty pretty horrendous and and shocking really 
Um, yeah, I think it was a it was a nice job. It was clever to do it that way, just to let them hoist themselves by their own petard, right? It's uh, mm. you know it. But what I found funny, so um, I I loved this thing. Um, I thought it was absolutely amazing. But I I noticed last night that Counterspin, who are featured in this, Kelvin Alp and Hannah Spira, they set up an emergency live broadcast where they talked to I think four of the stars of the documentary as well as those two, and. And um, yeah, they were complaining about all sorts. I mean, at one point they were basically doubling down. They were reiterating the fact that they do want to see politicians hang, that they stand behind everything they said about setting up gallows and all this kind of thing. Um, And at the same time, as we said, this is using their own words. The documentary really does a good job of letting them speak and just playing back what they've been putting on videos on Telegram and Rumble and places like this. And they started talking about how they were thinking of suing for defamation. And it's like, but this is your words. I mean, how do you sue for defamation when what they're doing is playing what you've been saying? Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I I guess you could be, in theory, defamed by somebody selectively editing what you've been saying. But from what I from what I could see in the documentary, it was all sort of fairly faithfully reproduced. That didn't look like they were sort of splicing together things that people were saying in order to make them sound worse than they actually are. So I, I, th- I think they they did a pretty good job. The um, one of the one of the stupid criticisms I've seen of it online is that one of the sort of visual techniques they used in the documentary is to sort of show show it as if these videos of the people who are speaking are projected on billboards around cities and the one of the stupid criticisms I've seen is that well that never really happened they never had their um, videos up on billboards around cities for people to see and I thought that was really sort of disingenuous oh, criticism really it's yeah a- I I think that was a metaphor, right, of how they're reaching out to an audience with these videos rather than having meant to have been taken literally. Mm, yeah, but it certainly was, yeah, not nicely produced, very, very slick. Um, you know, I think it is pretty long, so it's it's just over an hour long. I'm just wondering how many of the the general public are going to actually sit down and spend that time to watch it and whether you sort of have to be quite interested in the topic or quite a sort of a political nerd to actually be interested in in this enough to to sit down and watch it oh i hope people do do. i mean i i think they had a good viewership of the last big conspiracy documentary they did the one forgotten what they called it but it was um it was about billy tk and that one was okay. really well done as well. And I, I, I think that did pretty well. It was shared a lot, got a lot of viewers. So hopefully mm. this one will get something similar. Mm. Okay. And the other, the other thing I think is that it was good to see that they sort of showed all of these people saying all these things, but then it came across as kind of a, a bit of a vindication of the media saying, well, what, look, here's the evidence, what we've been saying is correct all along. We ha- we, we're right to be reporting on these people and the sort of stuff they were saying. But then what is the sort of outcome of this? How do we, how do we rescue people that we know who are down the rabbit hole with these people? How, how do we go about sort of drawing them out? And I think that would have been useful to have something in there that sort of gave maybe – some sort of techniques or solutions or whatever in order to assist people with getting people out. I don't know. 
I don't know whether yeah. that even exists. But I, I'm not sure. I mean, they're reporting on what's happened. I'm not sure they're yeah. in a position themselves to be recommending where to go from here. Um, possibly they could have got experts in. But I, I think this documentary did what it was meant to do, which was exposing a lot of the hatred that's coming out from these few people. Mm. Um, I, I am slightly worried, though. I mean, I think a couple of things are probably going to happen. One, hopefully, is people that were on the fringe are going to see this or their family members are going to see this and they're going to start to distance themselves. I do hope that it has that effect. But the one effect I've seen so far, watching the counterspin emergency broadcast the other night, it was obvious that it is pulling these people together. So people that I've not really really seen doing stuff together so much. Um, so Carleen and um, Kyle Chapman and Damien Dement and Amy Benjamin, who all kind of have their own audiences, they they all quickly rush to be on the show together with Kelvin Alp. So I'm, I'm worried that this is going to tighten the bonds that now that they've all been kind of pinned up as being enemy number one or enemies number one to ten, I think it's kind of given them something in common that might mean that they are more likely to work together. And that sounds a little bit scary to me. One of one of the points that they made in the documentary was they said they needed to decide whether or not it was a good idea to, to publicize this because there's always the possibility that um, people can then be drawn into the, even in these movements because of the exposure they give them via the sort of documentary. But what they said about that was that apparently the rules are that you should really only expose this stuff if it's already being sort of exposed to people outside of the audiences that the niche audiences that would normally attract those um, viewers. And then that does certainly seem to be the case that. Um, and and I think they make the point that the cat is really already out of the bag. You know, they do refer back to how invasive the QAnon and the Trump supporters and having what was it um one of the Kennedys and you know mm -hmm. being in and talking to Counterspin and related media and those related outlets. Yeah, I mean they it's already done. We're in a very different age now. That if you are on an extreme or in a fringe group, you can find what you want on the internet. Um, you know, it would be, have to be an extremely isolated person who would be protected from, you know, not having this investigation done. Mm. Um, I thought it was quite interesting when they followed up on Valerie and Allie Evans, was it? Um, two of the um, sort of middle-aged women who were at the protest um, and who had been on, you know, sort of the mainstream media wanting to get their stuff back on the final day. And I guess it was kind of interesting, you know, how they tried to uh, not, you know, be forthright about what their family thought hmm. and what their positions were now regarding the mandates or what have you. So I think there yeah. has been, I think, you know, certainly that being publicly identified that first time around, I think potentially had um, an impact on their lives, certainly within their immediate family. And I wonder what this new documentary has done. Yeah. Those two women, they still seem to be invested in the movement. They certainly weren't saying that it was all a mistake, which was, Mm -hmm. uh, regretful, and and then there was there was uh, the one of the women was saying that she she no longer watches uh, the mainstream media. So, um, I guess, but she was saying that the protest too, though. <laughs> oh, oh yes, indeed, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yes. No, she yeah, was saying that she hasn't watched it for many years, mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's the that's the problem, really, that people are switching off from professional media 
mm. and on to this amateur media and the likes of podcasts. Don't listen mm-hmm. to us. We don't know anything. We're not professionals. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Instead of of people who are trained journalists who at least most of the time do their job correctly and actually are trained to be able to weigh information and make sure that it is presented fairly and in in a balanced way. I want to sort of add one thing that Mark and I were sort of tossing around last night after I finished watching watching the documentary is how it was very much focused around, you know, the occupation of parliament. Whereas when the pandemic first started, we had a very different set of celebrities online who were leading the protests and spreading the misinformation. So you're talking about Billy TK, Vinnie Eastwood, uh, Lee, Lee Williams. Williams. So oh, we talked about how Lee Williams actually was out of the country for a while after he lost his job and his family um, for being exposed to his company for being quite racist. Um, but yeah, I think he was out of the country during the protest, so we didn't really hear from him. But also Carl Bromley, who has been quite vocal. I don't think he made it to the protest, but Bromley, you shared a video with me just today from Carl yeah. Bromley getting quite angry. Do you want to tell us what was in that video? Oh, God. Um, I, still, I, I still need to sit down and watch it, but um, it, was, it did come from Twitter, and he's sort of being um, very much pushed out of any sort of relationship with the Freedom and Rights Coalition, which is another group that sort of didn't get as much of a profile in the Fire and Fury documentary, um, for those who aren't very aware, Fire, um, the Freedom and Rights Coalition is sort of a Brian Tomicky fronted anti-mandate group, which is now trying to regain the momentum that it lost by not being at the forefront of the parliament occupation. <laughs> and Carl Bromley as well is a firebrand Christchurch preacher. And I can't help but wonder. So basically what's happened is an email has gone out to all the Freedom and Rights Coalition organizers telling them to disassociate from Pastor Carl Bromley. And I can't help but think that this is nothing to do with this politics, politics or any of the horrible conspiracy views that he's got. I can't help but think that maybe this is Brian Tamaki being worried that there's another preacher on his turf. And uh, obviously, Brian has the one true religion and any other preacher should probably go to hell. Right. (laughs) Well, but isn't he friends with um, Peter Mortlock of uh, the City Impact Church? I'm not sure he is. I, I think they, well, have they worked together on the Freedom and Rights Coalition stuff? Or are we mixing him up with a rise church? (laughs) No, no, definitely. There's a lot of interrelation here with all these pastors. Peter Mortlock has been saying some silly stuff online. Um, he's definitely another one of these freedom fighters. I'm just not sure whether there's a relationship between him and Apostle Brian. There might mm. well be. Oh, oh, and one one totally incidental thing that I found absolutely funny, and this is not to poke fun at apparently Kyle Chapman, who was once, I think he was in trouble for burning down a Mirai, but insists that he's not racist at all. Um, he says that he has dyslexia, and I don't want to take the mickey out of him for this, but he did write about how there was an emergency meeting about the Fire and Furry documentary, <laughs> which I thought was such a good typo. <laughs> But I guess something that I guess maybe has to do with when the do- when the Fire and Fury documentary was finished. But now that we're seeing, um, you know, a lot, some of these figures like I think um, Kevin Alp showing up in the uh, local body elections and for school council, school board elections as well. So they're, you know, engaging in that sort of tactics. 
like you see in some places in the US. So that's something I think we as skeptics in New Zealand need to be aware about and really have a reevaluation of what we consider our role and capacity to be involved in, um, you know, our district health. Well, if there's a, there's no district health boards anymore, but in terms of being participating in that sort of civic. Mm. Having so that civic yeah, responsibility. That, that's definitely a, uh, a concern that the local um, body elections are coming up in under two months. Um, and last week, last Friday, was the deadline for people to get their nominations in. And we had groups like Voices for Freedom saying, go and um, enroll and, and nominate yourself, um, but don't say you're associated with Voices for Freedom yeah. and try and get in there by stealth. And what they are calling for is they want to be able to put people in on these local government boards and and little little school boards and and things like that and they their goal is to make new zealand ungovernable uh, which yeah, sounds I, pretty pretty nasty really dan we've seen something similar but on a smaller scale in the past with fluoride right i believe that mary Byrne of fluoride free nz has tried stuffing local dhbs with anti-fluoride members in the past yes yes um she has and um this year she's applied to be on um, on the council for no, can't remember. Oh, um, Featherstone. She's Featherstone. Yes, she's trying to get onto the Featherstone council. Yeah. So Mary Byrne, obviously historically, is the head of Fluoride Free New Zealand. But a couple of years ago, she started hanging around with Billy TK and Vinnie Eastwood. But now they're out of favour. She started mm. appearing on Counterspin Media. So she is a hardworking woman. In that way, I respect her. It's just everything she works for is total and utter nonsense and is damaging people's health and welfare. So it's unfortunate she's on that side um because and, she you know, does work tirelessly and i think our listeners you know i think most of our listeners are quite clever um but we just can't anticipate or hope that you know there's two, there's more candidates than there are spaces i mean it looks like potentially for what where kevin alp is going for there's more candidates and spaces i think there's maybe about seven to nine when there's only five seats that's not going to be the case throughout most of the country I think Featherson's going to suffer and get um, some crazies in there. Yeah. The, the important thing really is when you vote to make sure that you you actually do some research and um, try and figure out what people's views are. Um, but I guess that, that is difficult. I mean, I know when I've voted in the past, there are just so many people to vote for on so many different things, at least here in Auckland, that you really i mean i i go through the booklet and i have a read, read of the blurb about somebody and what they're saying and i sort of put across through the ones who are saying things that uh, sound like they're totally weird and pseudoscientific and all that sort of stuff and no no you don't want but but if somebody doesn't write all that sort of stuff in their in their bio uh, then it's very easy to accidentally vote for somebody who who may by stealth um, bring these opinions in um, and have some sort of influence on things. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope that social media can help with this one because, for example, today um, in the local Porua Facebook group, um, there are three people running for mayor in Porua, and uh, and one of them turns out to be a QAnon supporter. And it was very nice to see someone outing her today on Facebook, saying, you know, yes, we have three candidates. 
but one of them you'd never vote for because she believes that QAnon is real. And mm. uh, that was kind of mm. nice to see. And I just hope a lot of people end up reading that and realizing that, you know, in reality, there are only two candidates that you should be thinking about. Mm. Yeah, I think I think, though, the problem is that the, this is coming up now, but it's still two months away that we're going to be voting. And while somebody may say, OK, I'm not going to vote for this person now, when it comes around to the time that they're going to vote, a lot of people just vote based upon name recognition. And, oh, where did I hear that name? Oh, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'll vote for them. <laughs> and it turns out they heard for them because they were a crackpot. Well, you know, you voted for Adam Nuttall and Kyle Chapman and goodness knows who else. Maybe maybe this is a job for uh, Mark Honeychurch's um, programming skills to uh, spider crawl throughout all these listings and uh, make a a website that lists all these candidates and then we can cross them off. That cannot be programmed, unfortunately. That is a lot of manual work because otherwise you end up with a whole bunch of false positives and uh, you start basically defaming people who aren't on the wrong side of things. (laughs) And we don't have deep enough pockets to cope with all those lawsuits. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think think what you're saying, what's being said here that, you know, Mark, that you know, we have members in our community who are doing the good work as well. And I know I see that on the Freedom and Rights Coalition Facebook page where I don't know who's moderating it, but they're not doing a great job if they're trying to um, make the impression that there's lots of support because, holy cow, there are hundreds of thousands of people. Hundreds, I shouldn't say thousands, hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of people, you know, responding positively to any criticism of the Freedom and Rights Coalition. Anyone who's calling them out gets quite a lot of upvotes. So. You know, there's a lot of support out there for not Freedom and Rights Coalition, I should say. Yes, I I guess we focus on the weirdness so much that it's hard sometimes to remember that most people haven't fallen down the rabbit hole and and do have their head in the right place. Uh, And often they are the silent majority. But yes, I think sometimes on Facebook, it's just that cheeky comment that lets you know that these people are out there. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's it's the non-silent majority that are more motivated to stir up the shit, really, isn't it? And uh, the silent majority will just go on with their lives and they won't care about these sorts of things until it actually affects them and comes back to bite them. Yeah. <sighs> but I I mean, I made a prediction a few months ago, having gone to um, the Counterspin Roadshow, that I don't think these people can keep themselves together until an election, a general election at least, that there are too many big personalities. That idea is being shaken a little bit with this documentary, seeing them kind of coming together. I do wonder whether maybe adversity will be enough that they can keep it together until an election. And that worries me a little bit. I mean, well, this is what Brian Tomicky is trying to achieve. He's trying to get that, what was it, the 5% that he needs to be a minor party, the umbrella party. It keeps on changing a name, whatever this coalition government he has in mind. And that was something that did pop out to me um, in the Fire and Fury documentary is just, you know, nothing about Tomicky and, you know, the side thing that he's trying to get going. Um, I believe that they're going to have that, you know, the people's court and the people's jury on the 23rd. So next Mm. Tuesday. Wednesday, Tuesday. You're um, going to attend that, are you? Oh, I'm tempted, tempted. Yes. Um, but I'm interested Prom- in seeing what the university is going to do because, you know, the last time there were protesters near the parliament, uh, they tried to burn down the law building. Um, um, not had- tempted. Sorry. Bronwyn and I will be going, Bronwyn. We will be going. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you two can be on the jury so that uh, it's not unanimous. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Does that will that stop people being executed if we yeah. can make sure? Awesome. <laughs> All right, we will be there. Well, how our, do we make sure? Duty. How do we make sure that we look like protesters? How do we look just well wearing guess, our masks? Conspiracy enough that we can get on the jury? Do we need like a QAnon flag or something? Oh, we probably need to make our mask with a hole in the middle. Oh, you can get those masks that just have a face on them. So it'll look like we're not wearing a mask. Should we wear two of those? Mm. <clears throat> but in all seriousness, obviously, you you do need to be careful of your own personal safety. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I did read about um, some of the anti-protest protesters um, in Christchurch, I think, last weekend, who sort of got into a bit of trouble those people sort of got in their faces and started to cause trouble. So there's oh. definitely um, and, okay. and it happened, and happened a little bad to happen. It happened a little bit in Auckland as well. Um, I'm under the impression that Damien Dement tried to uh, camouflage <laughs> yeah. himself with a pink shirt and uh, behaved a little bit wildly. Yeah, he was spotted pretty quickly. But Craig, in case you are worried, I hereby declare that if I get punched in the face while attending one of these rallies, I will not sue the New Zealand skeptics for personal damages. How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds very good. Yeah, <laughs> I hope that's legalistic enough that it'll cover you. Very good. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the um, documentary, we certainly recommend that you do view it because you should certainly should be required viewing for all New Zealanders, I think. Yes, absolutely. Well, agree. 16 and over, maybe. <laughs> well, yes, it uh, certainly contains some strong language uh, and uh, pretty nasty, um, nasty ideas. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes, certainly worth it for adults, at least. Daniel, we got you on because you're an expert in acupuncture, I hear. Are you an acupuncturist, Daniel? Oh, first I've heard of it, but sure, let's go with that. <laughs> Not that kind of expert then. No. So um, I, I know that you had an, a, uh, an item in last week's newsletter uh, because I've only just got around to reading it tonight. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you had you some... You mean this um, week's very, newsletter? Uh, well, yes. Both this, weeks? This, you, yes. You've been two weeks in a row, Daniel. It's been amazing. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. The most yeah, recent newsletter had yes. your article in it about acupuncture. Yeah, so it's an article I had written a while back, and it's just been sitting there. So I thought, yeah, I better, I better push it out to the newsletter and, and yeah, get it out there. And I got a, a few more that I could also take out of the archive and um, clean up and send out. So if people are interested, just on the week, sorry that I'm doing the newsletter. Don't worry about Craig's <laughs> weeks, but when I'm short of material, I'd love your articles. All right, awesome. Thank you. Anyway, Sorry, Craig, carry to, on. Yes. So do you want to give us a sort of an overview of, um, of the sort of uh, the points that you made in the in the newsletter article? Oh, the points you made. You made a pun. <laughs> not a deliberate pun. Perhaps. perhaps, perhaps oh, then. no, that's not OK. Anyway, Daniel, carry on. Uh, yeah. So acupuncturists seem to treat all sorts of things. Um they don't, they don't seem to have any kind of limits on what they can treat. And ACC pays um, for acupuncture sessions. And one ACC-approved claim, they can have up to 12 acupuncture sessions. Last year, it was 16. So things have improved a little bit. Was there a law change that 
change the maximum number of sessions because I think I recall reading something about how it used to be 16 in a year, but they've now changed it so that it's 12 in a shorter period or something like that. Yeah, it was 16 treatments over 52 weeks, and now it's 12 treatments over 12 weeks. I'd be surprised, honestly, if it's in legislation. I imagine this is more just a procedural thing. I imagine that kind of thing, how many treatments and what works, is is something that ACC would want to adjust as evidence in inverted commas for um, acupuncture comes in. So I, I wouldn't imagine that would be in legislation. It might be, but it would surprise me. Yeah, I believe I believe that is the case. Yeah, from reading the ACC webpage, they're saying – from the 15th of December, so presumably that was yeah, that was last year, the number of treatments funded by us will change from 16 treatments over 52 weeks to 12 treatments over 12 weeks from the client's first appointment with their acupuncturist. So I guess it would be possible to go and have 12 treatments and then at some point later in the year go and have another 12? Or would you have to injure yourself again or be somehow diagnosed with something that... It sounds to me like it's a bit of a way of acupuncturists being able to get even more money out of ACC. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so yeah, so have- my, my, my understanding is that, um, and I think Mark Hanna drew a graph a while ago of the number of treatments claimed for, that you basically get very few people like claim money for one to 11 or back then it would have been one to 15 and then a big spike at 16 and then it drops again at 17 and rises again at 32 um, <laughs> that I think you can go back and basically get re-diagnosed by the acupuncturist and then you get a reset. So you get another whole set of uh, treatments that you can go for. So I, I think the numbers kind of, and I guess maybe, Maybe that's to be expected. People try and get as much as they can out of this, but it turns out not many people are fine with just four treatments or six treatments. It happens to be as many as ACC will pay for. Yeah, but ACC is not paying the total bill, are they? Because every time you go and have a treatment, you would still have to pay something yourself out of your own pocket, I think. Was that not true? Yeah, no, that depends. So ACC, I think, has a standard fee that they pay. If your acupuncturist thinks they're worth more than that, you pay the difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Have either of you, have any of you actually experienced acupuncture? That's no, going to be a no all. from everybody except for me, isn't it? And I have never had acupuncture from an acupuncturist. I've only ever stuck needles in myself, but I've stuck a fair few needles in myself and I've got a good idea of where it hurts. And between the eyes is not very nice. On the elbow is pretty painful, weirdly. Um, but there are some places that are fine, like in my nose and um, in the webbed part between my fingers is all good. So, yeah, I've just experimented personally. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have acupuncture website claiming that they can do a treatment of mild brain injury, and that is covered under ACC. Um, there's a Nelson acupuncture clinic that can do a tongue diagnosis <laughs> and they say that's covered under ACC. Yeah, just just weird things like that. And to get an ACC claim, you usually have to go to a, a doctor and, and then they say, yes, go have some acupuncture treatments. But then we have a whole lot of uh, companies that are kind of bypassing that and they're hiring registered nurses or physiotherapists or osteopaths and they can submit 
on behalf of them to make an ACC claim. So I think medical professionals are allowed to make the submission to ACC if they're accredited under the HPCA Act, um, which acupuncturists aren't. But as Daniel says, chiropractors and osteopaths are. And it's only supposed to be the government has said it's only supposed to be for safety. We're safer being treated by chiropractors if they come under law because that gives us legal protections. But then at the same time, ACC is using this as a, well, obviously they're able to diagnose things if they come under the HPCA Act, um, mm. which is not, not how it should be. And this has been the concern for a long time, really, that regulating these uh, alternative health practitioners gives them an air of uh, legitimacy uh, in the minds of the public and in the minds of obviously government departments as well think that yeah because they're regulated uh, they must be they must therefore be good in what what they do and able to treat and now that chinese medicine is under the hpca act there is a new formed chinese medicine council which will take responsibility of acupuncture it probably will help legitimize acupuncture and um yeah increase spending by the government and the other thing that legitimizes that we've heard acupuncturists all over the country say is, hey, look, why would acupuncture work if ACC didn't fund it? ACC is mm. paying this much money a year. They wouldn't do that if it didn't work. <laughs> we've talked to ACC, haven't we, Daniel? And as far as yep. they're concerned, them paying for it does not mean that it works. They are not saying that acupuncture does anything just because they pay money for it. <laughs> and they, they even said it was there's probably yeah, a lack of evidence and they didn't seem to care. Yeah. And yet, Dan, you've you've done a few OIA requests to find out how much ACC is spending on acupuncture every year and yeah. how's that going? Yeah, the the last one was about fifty million dollars a year. Um, yeah, spending on acupuncture. It was yeah, crazy amounts. And it's basically going up every year, isn't it? Every year it was oh yeah, constant increase. Well, I'm yes. going to stop paying my taxes. <laughs> I think, like I do, what the ACC should do for everybody is just give them a pack of acupuncture needles and tell them to go home and experiment on themselves. <laughs> that would be a lot cheaper. I bought mine off AliExpress. I bought a box of, I think, 50 packs. It was about $30. So, so how much lead poisoning do you have now, Mark? <laughs> I don't know. How am I acting? Do I seem normal or is there something a little bit off about me? It's hard to tell whether it's lead poisoning or psychopathy, but anyway. I knew that would come up at some point. Thank you. <laughs> but, but I mean, ACC's logic is probably actually correct. By sending people to, to acupuncture, they're probably actually saving money because real treatments probably cost more. And many of these acupuncture treatments are probably taking um, advantage of the um, placebo effect and of and also regression to the mean in that things will just naturally get better over time. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to be um, having um, treatments, um, then you probably are going to feel better. So, but, I'd say, but I think that's a bit of a risky proposition. I mean, you know, you have your portion of a uh, portion of the population who maybe are a little bit hypo hypochondriac. But I wonder if, again, that placebo effect can actually start masking some very, very serious medical conditions. And therefore, mm -hmm. we are creating, a, you know, for some people, 
okay, ACC is saving some money in the short term for unnecessary hospital or, you know, use of the system. But I think for others, it's delaying a very, what's going to be a very, very expensive hospital stay. I I think um, people's health literacy is another thing, right? The fact that they start to believe that acupuncture works. Mm. Oh, I I seem to get better after I got acupuncture for this thing. Well, six months down the line when I'm diagnosed with cancer, oh, I'm pretty sure I remember my acupuncturist saying that they could treat pretty much everything. I wonder whether they can treat cancer. And it turns out a lot of acupuncturists will tell you that, yes, they can. Um, And so it starts off with something fairly benign. And before you know it, you're trusting this person with no medical experience to treat something that probably won't kill you if you get to a medical doctor. But if you don't, there's a good chance that you're not going to survive. But it isn't out without risks. Um, a collapsed lung is um, there is a small risk, but it's still there. And um, mm-hmm. there's been many cases in New Zealand yeah, that it has happened. Yeah, so I believe there is a subset of ACC claims, which is injury from acupuncturists. <laughs> <laughs> they'll pay out for medical if an acupuncturist has damaged you. What can we do about this? Cry into our cereal, I think. Mm. Or, or you know, sponsor those researchers who are, you know, putting out the qualitative and quantitative evidence that acupuncture is not effective. We basically need um, to convince current government to change the law. That's That's the only way. So far, no one's really wanted to listen. I get the feeling maybe you just have to embarrass the government into changing the law, make them look bad enough, and maybe they'll do something about it. Yeah, I think if we mounted a campaign pointing out that acupuncture doesn't work, uh, you get all, all the people out in the public saying, well, it worked for me. <laughs> yeah. and, well, uh, we've, I think yeah. we've had some recently, uh, if I recall, on the Skeptics Facebook page. <laughs> We do occasionally get people emailing us or yeah, messaging on Facebook saying that, yes, it does work for them. So why do we have a problem with it? Um, so uh, I understand that uh, most of you have seen a great documentary. We'll get back to another documentary again called Gloria Vale. Well, I just I've, saw it I've tonight. seen the trailer. Yeah, I've seen the trailer. Oh, but, oh yeah. Um, so, Dan, you've just come from the cinema having seen it, just, right? Just, yep, just saw it. And what are your impressions? I thought it was a very good, yeah, very good watch. Fairly emotional. Yeah, it was quite sad in some some of the parts. And there was even a, a, a Q&A at the end of our one. And the director um, was answering all kinds of questions, and um, which was good. There was even a, there was an ex-Jehovah Witness. Um, she spoke at how she was also in a controlling community. And she really enjoyed the film. And oh, yeah, that wasn't Rachel, was it? I, d- I didn't catch a name, so... Maybe you don't know who Rachel is. Okay, Rachel's a very vocal ex-Jehovah's Witness in Wellington. She does a really good job of, um, yeah, speaking up when she needs to speak up and sometimes even doing like a one-woman protest. Um, there are some nice pictures of me and her sitting outside the Jehovah's Witness conference a couple of years ago, looking happy, and she's got all her ex-Jehovah's Witness anti-JW signs up. Um, so it might might well have been her because she's, uh, she's keen on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Possibly, yeah. Um, before you went into the documentary, Dan, had you watched any of the other uh, Gloria Vale genre shows or documentaries that are already out there? I, I usually watch them when when they um, pop up on on TV. I, yeah, it's usually something I follow. So this was a special viewing that you saw. Presumably, you would the general public aren't going to go along to the documentary and then be able to have a Q and A afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Right. 
<laughs> so presumably, like the one that Bronwyn and I saw on Saturday, it was part of the International Film Festival? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, at the, yeah. At the Lighthouse in Petoni, yeah. So from what I can see from the trailer, there's been some... They're trying to take legal action against Gloria Vale to um, prevent abuse of people in sort of employment relationships and sort of slavery kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. what ha- Like, I mean, Gloria Vale has about, what, $40 million worth of assets and somehow in some sort of creative accounting claim that they only make about $2 million in profit. But all of it, they have no employees. Everyone's a volunteer working, you know, thousands of hours in this industry. And so you have these people. And, you know, Mark, there's something really funny that you're aware of that goes on with the uh, bank accounts. How they can Uh, start to So from from what I've heard with the bank accounts, I listened to an episode of Let's Talk About Sects which is a very cleverly named cult podcast. Maybe. Um, and they they had an interview with, I think, Liz from the Gloria Vale Leavers Trust, who said that, um, and I think they had maybe one of the leavers on as well, and they were saying that the way that it works for them is that when women kind of get old enough that, you know, they're ready to enter the workforce, they are driven into grey mouth. They are taken into the bank where they sign forms to put a bank account into their name. And then that's it. They never see a bank card. They never get any details of what that bank account is. Presumably, I think they're signing over authority to one of the older males at Gloria Vale. And then that bank account is just used for money to go through. So I guess Gloria Vale can make it look like they're paying people or doing what they want to do with these accounts, putting a certain amount of money through each one. But the individual women who's, you know, these are their bank accounts, they never get access to them. It's not for them to be touching because they are just women. Then, you know, in in this male-orientated cult, women are not seen as uh, equal citizens, unfortunately. Mm. Something that's unclear in the documentary is that there seems to have been some sort of funny contract changes. Um, I think when they first join or become adults, there's a contract that they sign in which they they have a portion, they're entitled to a portion of the partnership, um, but then there was a new contract, but in order to sign a new contract, they had to sign a new sort of commitment. And they don't quite go into the um, ins and outs of um, what that contract was. And I think that sort of upset the participants that we had or the subjects of the documentary. It's kind of like the Al Capone um you know, situation, you know, it's the IRS is going to come get you, but there's a hell of a lot of other crimes that are happening in the background. Um, you know, it's not just you know, people being criminally well, surely, surely we need, Surely we need to update that. This is now the Donald Trump situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, so, yeah also- so, so that document you were talking about, Bronwyn, I think was the What We Believe document. And I think Sharon said that it was 118 pages long. Mm-hmm. This is not a short document. And yeah, I mean, so the Q&A that Bronwyn and I um, had after our viewing, we actually had um, a couple of the stars of the documentary. I shouldn't say stars, really, the subjects of the documentary. So uh, I think it was, was it, it was Charity? Sh- Sharon Rarity and uh, so Sharon, Sharon Reddy, Reddy and, and Charity, I think Virginia. it was. Virginia. Virginia. Oh, Virginia now. Sorry. Yeah. So Virginia ready. So the the two of them were there um, and that was really powerful. Just hearing. So the daughter is now ex Gloria Vale, but the mother is still in and she was dressed in her Gloria Vale outfit because she's still a believer. 
Um, and she said during the Q&A that she's been shunned by most people there. She still has some friends, but a lot of people at Gloria Vale won't talk to her. The leadership wants her out, but she's just refusing to go. She really believes that through these legal efforts that are documented in this documentary, she thinks that there is a chance that there will be change. And honestly, she's so unbelievably brave for doing this. Um, in the face of all this adversity, she still believes in Gloria Vale and just wants to make a change for the better. Yeah, that must be really difficult, actually, still being part of the community, but then agitating for change, um, and particularly in a community as, as um, I don't know, what's the right word? <laughs> How would you describe? Legalistic? Oppressive. Okay, oppressive, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm sure there's lots of bad words we could use for Gloria Vale. I mean, I, like many of these places, I think it started off with good intentions. And then over time, yeah. human beings are human beings. And it just got awful. It's, it's part of that, you know, that whole 1960s, 1970s trend of intentional communities with the Christian twist. And of course, you know, anything run by man can get a little bit poisoned at times, you know, or usually, you know, goes to seed. And that's what seems to have happened with Gloria Vale. But I guess one thing that always sort of sticks in my mind is, that, yes, they want all this change, um, but there's still something that keeps them there in terms of the beliefs. And it's not quite clear what part of the theology they may be interested in changing, except for maybe, you know, women having a little bit more power or a little bit more say. Not clear. Hmm. Um, what and, thing? Yeah. Go on, go on. <laughs> Sorry. One of the things that has stuck into my mind was was the scene where the kids were in the car and they mm. were singing. I think it was something like singing, women don't drive, they don't survive. Oh, no, it's women drivers, no survivors. Ah, oh, something. Yes, okay, that's right. Jeez. <sighs> yeah, that was a little bit surprising, but I, I think, you know, quite a quite a decent fly in the wall piece of video to include. It was you know, right at the beginning of the documentary, right? And a bit of an eye opener. Mm. Uh, and the documentary is mm. like that. It doesn't hold your hand. There's no voiceover. There's no introduction into this is glory availed. This is the history. It just goes straight into the story of the, the first person they decided to start talking to um, who's an ex glory Vale member, John. And it just kind of goes from there. And it, so it, it's just very fly on the wall. It's very kind of just looking at people's stories. Uh, so I can understand how for some people that's not the type of thing they're looking for in a documentary. Mm. I think one thing that always stuck me is that um, they tried it. I think one thing that kept on being hinted around is how they really are trying to hit at the heart of the financials of Gloria Vale. Um, one of the people in our Q&A on Saturday um, said that he was a resource manager for the local area and there was concern about the pollution going into Lake Halpiri. You know, lots of contamination, I think, with phosphorus and something else, nitrates. And he went to a local meeting and there was Neville Cooper there, you know, accusing him two or three times of being the spawn of the devil. But no one in the local board was, you know, standing up or saying, you know, you need to leave Neville or none of that. Um, so, so Neville Neville being the head of Gloria Vale until he died, um, renamed himself to Hopeful Christian. Mm -hmm. So most people <laughs> probably know him as Hopeful Christian. But I think calling him Neville is a little bit more down to earth. And, you know, I, I, I think I prefer that name for him, to be quite honest. 
I mean, this financial sort of fear, I think, particularly they've sold quite a few of their big businesses in the aftermath of COVID-19. So, Mark, you mentioned that they had a hunting business. They sold that in about 2020. Um, but when it was operating, they were probably selling packages for about $5,000 to $50,000. They're... Dairy. So what, what is a what does a hunting business do? Oh, they so they go, had they a get... hunting lodge. So you yeah. you turn up and they'd have like an all expenses or no expense spared, you know, or everything laid on hunting week. So and here's you go your off gun. And hunt stags, what, what do you want to go out and kill? Yeah, so okay. it's trophy trophy hunting. Sometimes I guess if there's something that had a little bit of meat, you may get some home kill. But I think largely it was trophy hunting. But it, um, it's a weird, disparate set of business, isn't it, Bromley? Because it's like hmm. the they used to run the small airline, and the, I think they, they had, had aircraft repair. Apparently, they were leaders, according to um, the one of the Gallery Vale owners of a Sphagnum Moss company. Yes. And that was they sold that many years ago. But apparently, they had a warehouse in Los Angeles, and they sold stuff to Disneyland. Currently, they've lost a couple of contracts regarding their animal feed business. Um, Silver Farm Foods is no longer providing them with offal. So that's O-F-F-A-L, sort of, you know, byproducts of um, animal slaughter. However, they are going to court regarding the Westland Milk Company, which is a Chinese-owned company. Um, They apparently signed a contract not too long ago stating that for 10 years, this Chinese-owned company would take all of the milk from the three dairy farms that Gloryvale owns. Um, So once this whole, all this news about the child labor came out, they wanted to get out of the contract, which would have been about a $9 million loss. I'm sorry, China had ethical issues? (laughs) (laughs) Surprises, surprises are made. But now wow, okay. Glory Vale has gone to court um, with an injunction. So the Westland company um, is still going to be taking that milk until the um, it's revealed that maybe child labor happened or, you know, these allegations are false. Um, but the court said, you know, um, the lawyers were saying at the end of the documentary that they are, you know, all these cases are gradually bleeding Gloria Vale dry. You know, it's, mm. uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, you know, millions of dollars in contracts that they're losing. But usually these legal cases, they're costing them hundreds upon thousands of dollars. Yeah. But and, e- and- even then, I think from what one of the uh, the people in our Q&A said at the end of the session, they expect it to take 20 to 30 years to dismantle Glory of L. You know, they're, they're seeing this as a long slog in order to help people get out because most of the people in there now have been born in there. I think in the documentary, they talk about Sharon Reddy, the uh, the grandmother, how she had 60-something children. She then said in the Q&A- Grandchildren. She, she sorry, had grandchildren. Th- <laughs> yeah, not 60 children. Sorry, had, 60 she, grandchildren. She, had she said in the children. Q&A, it's, it's above 70 now. I think maybe 75 grandchildren she has. So this is out of 600 people, like over 10% of them are her grandchildren. So most people in there have known nothing Nothing but glory avail. That is their entire life. And so it's kind of hard to reach those people and let them know that the world outside isn't quite as awful as it is inside Gloria Vale. Because, of course, they're told Gloria Vale is the only perfect place around, right? It's where salvation is and everywhere else is ruin. Mm-hmm. Or that there yeah. are Christians outside of the camp, but, um, you know, you're not going to be a Christian if you leave. You know, you're not going to be saved if you leave. You're not going to heaven if you leave. <laughs> and in this in this attempt to dismantle Gloria Vale, what happens to the people on the who are 
sort of get out are, are they looked after financially or are they sort of walking away with nothing and and sort of their life's work is it sounds like they're walking away with nothing um however i would say that the um as dave reddy was his name the person that he profiled he's not the first person in his family to have left um so some of them are preceded by family who are there but i'm not sure what levels of support they give they have skills they are very skilled people mm. they are skilled in farming and in you know mechanics it's just what they lack is maybe the qualifications to go with it but i guess they maybe have enough of a reputation that they are able to walk on the farms and you know say i will work i will work for anything and you know yeah. people will take them up on that offer but, um, but nevertheless the- if you're walking out and you're you're a 50 year old or something and and you have no life savings or anything like that, then it's yeah. that's a pretty difficult position to be in. Yeah. The the other thing that's there to help is the glory of El Levers Trust. So I, I think a lot of this right. was done in association with them. And that, from my understanding of the podcast I listened to last year, it has been started by a conservative church somewhere in Christchurch, but they are doing an amazing job by the sounds of things, just looking after as many of the people as they can that are coming out of Gloria Vale with nothing. And Bronwyn and I went up to the Leavers Trust after the viewing on Saturday, and um, we had a chat with them to see if we could possibly get someone to this year's Skeptics Conference. And um, we're pretty hopeful. It sounds like maybe we'll have to fly someone up from Christchurch, but hopefully we can splash out to do that <laughs> and get someone just to come and talk about what these people's experiences are when they leave Gloria Vale and, you know, what it's like adjusting to the kind of lifestyle we live, which is very different to what they've ever experienced. But I would say for someone who's going into this documentary, it's going to be a very different experience than, say, the um, fluffy fluffy bunnies and kittens that you see from the TVNZ documentary. Um, and maybe also, but even maybe even less dire and disgusting than the 60 Minutes documentary that was made when uh, Neville Cooper was still alive. They don't quite go into the, it's implied, I mean, they do talk a little bit about sexual assault um, sex, and sex crimes, um, but it's not an overwhelming part of the documentary. It's very much about this legal case. Well, I shall uh, have to see if I can find a place I can watch it. I, I had a look to see when it was on in Auckland, but it seems I may well have already missed it. In, I think it's it's, it's, a, it, it's only yeah, it's only being released nationwide. I think he said this week. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, so it's going to actually go into um, sort of mainstream theaters, is it? Well, sounds like it. For, yeah. Right. Lo- I, I mean, I think it's more, more of your Rialto slash um, lighthouse right. sure, of the, sure, of the sure. country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah going to art house cinemas. Yeah, I don't know if it not, has a place in Hoyts. It's not. It's not just restricted to actual film festivals. Yeah. No, no. General release, I believe, is this Thursday. I think they said. But yeah, it, it won't. It won't be in your local Reading, I think. Or okay. Reading? Is it called Reading or Reading over here? It's I Reading. It's right? Reading. Pretty Reading. sure it's Reading. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So on a similar subject, I just read that um, David Ferrier's uh, new email he just released, the independent review on Arise Church <gasps> has been leaked. And he's put leaked. up a, yes, and he's put up a download link. So that's going to keep me busy after this podcast. Nice one, Dan. Let's uh, grab it before it disappears. Oh, well, it's, oh, it's, on, nice. it's on a Dropbox. But yes, it looks like it's not an actual official document. It's a I've taken pictures of it document. Yeah, interesting. That'll be fun to read. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. 
I believe on Friday night there is going to be a Skip Dixon cyberspace meeting. Yes, yes, I guess it is time for Membership Corner. You're right. We do have a Skeptics in Cyberspace meeting. Um, we have the link up on the, well, we have the event up on the Facebook page. And then when we get closer to the event, I think the link for the Zoom goes up. So it is a Zoom call. Um, however, you can also um, register your interest on our meetup page, which we will always put on our show notes. But before that, on Thursday, August the 18th at well, it says 6.30 here um, at the Fork and Brewer in Wellington. We have the science-based healthcare activism in the pub. Dan, Mark, do you want to talk about what happens there for the people who may be just listening in for the first time? Uh, yeah, um, we go after bullshit in the um, <laughs> health sector and, and advertising. And yeah, so we, we basically make uh, various complaints like... ASA, ASA complaints. Mm-hmm. So if there's strong claims in a newspaper saying homeopathy can um, help with certain conditions, we would submit a, a complaint and and hopefully stop that from happening. And and, and so if anyone comes and joins us, we will happy to um, get them uh, sorted and um, go through how to uh, do a complaint. And if you successfully do a complaint, we'll um, we'll give you a, a free a free drink. What an incentive! That's, and that's only the first and- complaint. That's not a free drink for every complaint <laughs> because Dan and I both would have had to have been given like a hundred plus beers each. Um, <laughs> beer for your first complaint. And I guess then it's always worth saying that next Friday, the 26th of August at 6 p.m. will be our regular in-person Wellington Skeptics in the Pub meeting inside the Intercontinental Hotel in the Hotel Lounge. So again, um, I have that sort of on a regular posting on the uh, Skeptics Facebook page. But again, you can also go to the meetup page that we have in the show notes to uh, register your interest. Craig, are we seeing you at our Skeptics in Cyberspace on Friday? I will attempt to be there. Yes. I'd love your commitment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a few days away. Who knows? I might have a might have a COVID relapse between now and then. <laughs> oh, oh, I hope not. But that, like percentage wise, how well are you? How good are you feeling? Are you most of the way there? Yeah, well, I'm feeling okay. It's my, my voice and I'm still got a bit of a cough. So I guess I'm at... 80, 90 I suppose. Nice. Anything else we need to talk about? I've just been taking a big, a quick spy at this report. Are, I know, I know. I feel like we need to uh, 90, pause. Ninety-two recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> ninety-two recommendations. Wow. Okay, so everybody, go to webworm.co, look at the lead story, and grab a copy. This is this is going to be interesting. Yes. And do it quickly, because sometimes I think with the webworm articles, as soon as it sort of falls off the main page, you can't access it unless you're a paid subscriber of David Ferrier. So the sooner, right. the better. Yes, anyway, I, I have downloaded the report. I, I am a paid subscriber of David Ferrier anyway. So, <laughs> Me too. All right. You have been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can email us news at skeptics.nz. We will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. See you later. See ya.